I remember when we were signing up for school and we did this test to really just gauge where my English level was at. And I remember looking at the paper and looking at the lady kind of directing the test and just bursting into tears. Hey, college kids, welcome back to my podcast, Who Cares About College? In today's episode, I'll be interviewing Michelle. So if you could introduce yourself. Hello, everyone. My name is Michelle Jean-Louis, and I'm calling in from a small town here in Belleville in New Jersey, but I'm originally from Haiti, a a town called Gussier, and I lived there for about 10 years. So I've been living in America eight years and two days. Uh, And my my spectrum of interest you can find everything that has to do with health, health equity and immigration reform. But I'm also a romantic. I love watching rom-coms and listening to good old 90s music. So that's about, that's who I am. I am a rising freshman at Harvard College, and I will be going in with an intended major in history of science on a pre-med track. All right. So let's paint like a basic picture for who you are as an applicant and also kind of your upbringing and how education was viewed in your family. So can you give like a quick uh, run through of your demographics? And then also you said you were from Haiti originally, and then you moved here. So can you describe like the experience when you came to America, what did your parents kind of like expect of you in terms of like education and going, you know, I think you were middle school, right? When you came to middle school. school Yeah. I I was in fifth grade actually. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I can definitely paint a picture. I come from a family where education is a privilege. I come from a country where education is a privilege. I remember growing up in Haiti where both of my grandmothers uh, were illiterate women. Neither of them spoke, neither of them wrote or read. So it was a big deal for us. And it was almost like a vine that lifted us out of poverty. So education is, we really prioritize it and going to college since I was a kid, it was not a matter of if, but when. Um, So we really prioritize being educated because it is the one thing that my mom believes that no one can take away from you, especially as a Black woman. So I moved to America at the age of 10. It is a really interesting story. And when I got here, so I did not move with neither of my parents. I've been living with my aunt and uncle. So that's, that's a part of my story as well. Um, another part of my experience that really influenced my college application process is the fact that I was undocumented for about seven out of the eight years that I was here. So when I applied, I had just received my green card. So with Mr. Donald Trump being president and all of the stigma that came with being an undocumented, um, resident here in America, I really wanted to go into a college that strive to really make a space for people like me that really recognized who I am as an individual without all of the stigma that came with being undocumented that recognized me for my ability and for my, really just for my way of thinking. And I remember a marking distinction about Harvard is the fact that when I was looking through their um, 
website, there was an article there about their efforts of making sure that undocumented immigrants feel welcome to apply and that they know that at Harvard, they have resources for them. Even though when I applied to Harvard, I was no longer an undocumented immigrant, but it meant a lot that such an institution that a lot of people usually perceived as being elitist really was welcoming and was striving to make a space for individuals in a society that are usually stigmatized and alienated. Um, to be more specific, I am Haitian. I am a Black woman. Um, I am trilingual. My first two languages were French and Creole, but of course, I speak English now as well. I've dabbled in Spanish a little bit, but don't quiz me on that. <laughs> I can't really speak fluent Spanish. I don't think um, any of us can after quarantine. Oh, mm-hmm. gosh. <laughs> Uh, but that's that's really my story of coming to America. Um, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, most people I interview are like American American, like or they were immigrants and they were like really young, or their parents are immigrants and they were born yes. here. And this doesn't have to do with your college process, but can you like elaborate when you come to America? Because most of us are not familiar, and you don't. I presume you didn't like speak English at least not no. when you came. What was the transitioning process? Because like going from someone who doesn't speak English, being dumped oh here gosh. and then making it to Harvard, that's like, oh, my gosh, quite the transition. I, <laughs> um, I remember. So I came here when I was 10 and I went to school at the age of two. So in Haiti, pre-K and kindergarten is kind of mixed. So kids usually start going to school, what we consider school and quotation mark, at the age of three. But my mom told me from a young age, I was just quite talkative and she couldn't keep me at home. So I went to school at two years old. And so when I moved to America, when you move to America and you don't speak English, they usually prompt you to redo a grade. So I Uh had to redo fifth grade. And that is why I'm able to graduate at 18, even though Mm -hmm. I actually did fifth grade twice. Um, You're put into an ESL program. I was in the ESL program for only two years. I remember when we were signing up for school and we did this test to really just gauge where my English level was at. And I remember looking at the paper and looking at the lady kind of directing the test and just bursting into tears. Here I am, someone who's always been on top of their class. And here I'm in a, just a foreign country with, for the first time, looking at a white lady because I've never been around mm-hmm. Um people that were not of color. So here I am just really intimidated and I burst into tears and I remember leaving that room and this lady told me, watch Disney Channel. You'll learn, you'll learn English by watching Disney Channel. So a fun fact about me, I, for most part, even though I was in the ESL classroom, I learned English by watching Disney mm-hmm. Channel and really trying to listen in and trying to imitate the way that the actors were saying the words. Um, I left ESL after two years, but it was really, really hard. I think it's specifically when you come into America as a person of color, as a Black girl who had curly hair, I didn't speak the language, I had a thick accent for the words that I could muster And I lived in New York at the time and my classroom was just, everyone else was white. And that was really intimidating to me. And I try to do everything to fit in, whether it is talk differently, whether it is changing my style, I permed my hair. So I think the transition was harder culturally, more so than academically. Um, Math is universal. And I was always 
good at math, even though I was not proficient at writing and reading. So I found comfort in that fact. And eventually you read and you learn to speak. So I think the hardest part about that transition was absolutely the cultural aspect, fitting in culturally. I don't think if you if you love education, if you love math, if you love reading and writing, it will translate eventually. And at the time, I was really insecure about the fact that English was not my first language. But the more you get older, the more of a better student and intellectual that you are, because you are aware of uh, the limiting aspects of the English language. There are certain words that the English language doesn't, well, certain emotions that it doesn't express in words. And the fact that I get to have English as well as French and Creole makes me a better writer and a better speaker at that. So for anyone trying going through that transition from going to a different country to America, it's absolutely possible. And I don't think it's hard, but I don't think that it's, I don't think it's impossible. And I think the hardest part will be trying to gauge where you fit into American society. And I, I'm with you. It's like a privilege. Once you grow older, it's a privilege to know another language before you know English. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Now people are impressed by the fact that I speak. Yeah, exactly. Languages. They're like, oh, yeah. And when I was little, bilingual. right. And when I was little, I did not want to tell anyone because mm-hmm. I just wanted to be American. But now I think my heritage and the fact that I'm Haitian and the fact that I can see the world from two perspectives coming from a third world country and now living in America, it really makes me a better individual. And I think that really came through in my college application process so yeah and we'll talk about that later as well like yes. how that you wrote about that and like what your um you know topics were but Absolutely. let's start with like I guess we can say what your circumstances were when you did come to America and I'm talking more specifically high school so Absolutely. would you categorize your high school one as like a public or private and then what resources in general did they have to help you with the college process were you did you have guidance counselors that prepared you, helped you with selecting good, like hard, rigorous courses? Did they have like any sort of SAT prep, ACT prep help, or were you more like kind of on your own with that? Absolutely. So I came from a public school, which is <laughs> which is not as common uh, for people who go to Harvard. Um, my school was really normal. Um, actually, we were we are actually not considered a great school, uh, but I had the resources. Um, there was there was this program called the Ralph Fallon Academy, where you apply your eighth grade year, and if you are interested in either engineering or medical um, sciences, you're put into the track where you get to take specific courses like biotechnology and um, all these courses, or you get to go to the hospital and shadow doctors and have internships and all the likes. So I had that. I also had a counselor. Um, we did not, they did not offer any sort of SAT or ACT prep at that. Um, but that's about, that's the profile of my school. Actually, I'm the first person, I think over a decade to get into Harvard, but we, but every single year, someone got into an Ivy league. So I okay. think I think it was a regular school, nothing special, but yeah. All right. So coming in, let's see, can you tell us more about that program that you like you applied for and you got into like what what resources did they give? And I guess we can, usually I go into grades, Mm -hmm. but like we can go into maybe the extracurriculars first, like what you got from that. And then we can do your grades later. 
All right. So the Ralph Lauren Academy, it's a pre-professional program. So for me, I, I knew that I wanted to become a doctor, but it really just expanded my horizon. It introduced me to public health and how you can influence a population instead of just one patient at a time. So I think that was the basis of the Ralph Lauren Academy. We had a lot of different courses that I can probably find here. My freshman year, I entered into Introduction to Medical Sciences. So it really went behind the scene with HIPAA and all the laws and all the organizations that really influence the healthcare system. And then I had biotechnology, and then I had experiencing medical sciences. And for the most part, just we had professionals coming in, whether it be doctors or surgeons or physical therapists, and they really gave us the gist on their specific um, track and field. And then for our last year, we had um, introduction to public health or health and society. And that really solidified my interest in public health. And also as a resource, we were given um, upperclassmen. So the seniors were there to help us uh, through whether it be AP class or AP classes or other um, activities that we're going through. And another marking aspect of the Ralph Vallon Academy is that you are on an honors track. So every single one of your classes have to be either honors or AP. My school did not offer any IB courses or dual enrollment. So from junior to senior year, you have to take all AP classes. And that was all. Um, So (laughs) I have a question. When you, when you're part of this program, but you're also part of your school, is it like your standard six, seven classes in school, and then you have this program on top of that? Or is it like a place, oh my God. You you have this program on top of it. A lot of people, because it was a new program when I first arrived in high school, a lot of us weren't really aware of how it worked and the fact that we had to take extra courses. So that meant that I didn't have a lunch period for most of my high school uh, because I had to take an extra course. But I think that actually helped me because I ended up having the highest GPA because Mm -hmm. of that. So it's it's really a lot. Uh, at my school, we're required to write a research paper in order to graduate. But because of this program, I actually wrote two research papers and then the additional research papers. So I ended up writing three research papers, unlike someone who's on the regular track who's only writing one research paper overall. So it really dem- demands a little bit more out of you, but it was a great program in the sense that at the end, it ended up being 12 of us, even though it started with like 25, but everyone dropped it because <laughs> it was so rigorous. <laughs> so the 12 of us, we just created this community. We call it the academy community where we just the 12 of us, we had a lot of the same classes at the same time. So we went through high school together and grew together and went to this college, went through the college application process together. That was the Ralph Lauren Academy. My God. <laughs> it's really, it's really not as bad once you're in it. I, I promise you. No, I'm sure. But like what I would, what I thought when you were talking, I'm like, okay, so you know how you have those elective classes? Yeah. I thought that's what it was. Like it would, they would just push into those. No, it's on top of everything. Oh my God. Okay. Yes. (laughs) All right. So you said, you mentioned research papers, so we can go into that. Yes. So, I mean, I'm going to let you take it from here. I don't do research. I don't really know what questions to ask. So like, can you start like 
what did you find like a topic on who did you work with what resources did the um did the program offer you and then in the end did you get like any publications or something like that all right so i'm going to talk about two research papers the one for uh my graduation requirement i actually wrote it about immigration reform mm-hmm. um as an undocumented immigrant, I know what it's like to go through that process, the UCS, the USCIS process, and all the stigma that comes with it. And I really just elaborated upon the fact that a lot of the times, I really just wanted to get rid of the stigma because the Trump administration really made it seem that a lot of undocumented immigrants are really just the low level citizens of society and they're coming through wall. That's not the case. Most of undocumented immigrants who come to this country come via visa overstay. So we come in legally and then just gradually we don't have access to papers. So I, my, the basis of my research paper was to really introduce some reforms that we could do to make sure that people have resources. For example, we have over 1 million individuals who are in this backlog right now waiting for a green card and they will die before receiving a green card. So of course, people, of course, we have a lot of numbers when it comes to undocumented immigrants around, I think, 11 million right now in America. And that's because it is easier to come to America and stay in America undocumented than it is to come legally because there are not a lot of, a lot of pathways ways, whether you are simply an immigrant fleeing from your country because of civil unrest, or you're just someone who wants to take advantage of America, there are very limited pathways. But there are a lot of ways where you could stay and thrive in this country without papers. That is not right. If we want a society in which people can come here and really take advantage of the land of the free and the land of immigrants, there should be more pathways for someone to enter America and stay America and stay in America legally. If you pay attention, I've not said illegal immigrant. I keep saying undocumented because I am an advocate for immigrants. You cannot call an individual illegal. A per- somebody's presence can't be illegal. It's like saying that you as a person, you don't fit into the social construct. It's a way of alienating people and really belittling people. You can be undocumented, but as an individual, you can't be illegal. So that was the basis of my paper. I also, for my academy program, I wrote about healthcare. Mm-hmm. as it pertains to undocumented immigrants, if you can see the theme. Yep. <laughs> and how in America, there are actually, we have, I think we spent like $14 trillion every year on healthcare. And that is more than any other country. And yet because of the middleman system and the middleman system is insurance, a lot of that money doesn't actually reach the people. So we're spending all this money yet the people of the country are not getting health care. And I really talk about maximizing health instead of maximizing care. We we have all these A-grade technologies. We have all these um, procedures, but the people are not benefiting from it. Mm-hmm. And I really zoned into undocumented immigrants about how in the budget, there's actually money set aside for undocumented immigrants. But one, when you are an undocumented immigrant, you don't know that. And of course, a lot of people who don't have their papers are even scared to go to the hospital because that could lead to them being deported 
or they're scared to go to the hospital because of the bill. So it's about really just talking about it. Let's talk about it. Let's um, publicize that there's actually money there where as an undocumented immigrant, you have the right to privacy um, and as well as there are money and there are resources for you to get access to healthcare. So that was the basis of my um, other research paper. No, I was not published. Uh, so it was really just for, well, the academy one, it was a requirement, but it was really just for fun. Um, and for my senior requirement, I just really wanted to talk about what it's like being an undocumented immigrant. Because although I speak so boldly about it, a couple of years ago, I didn't. No one, you know, I mm-hmm. for most of my high school experience, even in America, most of my friends didn't know that I was undocumented until this year because I didn't feel comfortable with sharing it until I had received my papers. Um, So I talk about it so boldly in a way of telling other uh, little girls who are right now who don't have their papers that that doesn't define you. Mm -hmm. You have access, you still have access to a lot of resources in America, take advantage of it. And just because of your legal status, that doesn't confine you, your academic abilities. It doesn't confine your extracurricular abilities. You can still achieve something like going to Harvard or any other dream school as you might wish. In these schools, you don't have to get your papers. Even though when I applied, I was already a legal resident. But even if you don't have um, access to legal papers, schools like Harvard, specifically Ivy Leagues, they offer great financial aid program. Uh, because if you, I don't know if you know this, but when you don't have your papers, when you're undocumented, you don't have access to FAFSA. Mm-hmm. So that means that a lot of times if you want to go to school, you have to pay for it out of pocket. And if you are undocumented, a lot of <laughs> a lot of the individuals who make up that population don't have access to money like that. But schools like Harvard and a lot of top 10 schools, actually, they're need blind. So mm-hmm. if you apply and you want to go there, they will pay for you to go there. So that's another part of it. And just to shed some more light on this, like, issue with undocumented immigrants and like how, again, you said it's really difficult to get the papers in the first place. Absolutely. So when you, you know, just for your experience, when you came, were you trying to get your papers since you were 10 years old? Or is it something that when you started the college app process, you realized, oh my God, maybe I do actually need to get it now? Oh no, it's a process that started when I was 10 years old. Oh my God. (laughs) It takes a really long time. I I don't think you can like trust um, the websites, it says, oh, in one year now, there are people who've been waiting for decades for papers. And the process is really, it's, it's almost you're going in blind because mm-hmm. a lot of times you don't know how long it will take. So sometimes it might take a year. Sometimes it might take 10 years. Sometimes you might be waiting for a lifetime for over a million people who are right now waiting for their green card. They will never see it because of a backlog. So oh absolutely not. It was a long process, but thank God we made it. It came right on time too. Like, were you worried throughout high oh, school? Of course, of course. I remember my junior year, a lot of my uh, friends were making their college list and I, and I didn't make it because at the time I didn't know 
that I could apply to college without my papers. So I'm like, I don't even know if I'm going to college. Never mind. Oh my God. How do how do you build a list of colleges if you don't know if you're able to go to college? And as well as my family, we don't have financial means. Like I said before, I'm living with my aunt and uncle. My mom lives in Haiti and my dad is not really in my life. So there was really, it was just like, there was really no way in my mind last summer at this time, I didn't know whether I would be going to college. And I received my green card August of last year. So it was just perfect timing, perfect timing, miracle. I will not take the credit, all God's work. I love your perspective because like people don't realize like how privileged you are until you listen to it. Absolutely. It's, I think, you know, when you're online, if you're on TikTok right now, everyone is complaining about the FAFSA, but imagine (laughs) completing the FAFSA. Or even if you do and you and you don't have like um, the typical family setting, family structure, typical American family structure, Mm -hmm. it is just exponentially harder just getting tax papers from my mother who doesn't live in America. Uh And there are and there are some countries that don't do taxes. So how do you have access to these documentations? So it's it's a really difficult process for undocumented immigrants for immigrants people with papers it's it's a, it's a difficult process for everyone really i don't want to be inclusive and just say oh it's only hard for us you know but um it's possible i am proof that it is possible it's hard but you can get through the process victorious so but, i mean that's perfect timing i'm so glad you did get it though <laughs> oh my God. Okay. So let's see, we can go through your other extracurriculars too. So you did mention the research papers, which like, I don't know if people would count that as extracurricular, but I think it is. It's like you put time and effort into it. You and You put, put a lot of time. Out. I think months at a time. You, it, it takes, I think for me, for my English one, the one about immigration, I think it was about two months. And it was a 10-page paper, but mm-hmm. my teacher, um, Mrs. Chalet, I love her. She was really keen because she was also a professor at a college nearby. She was really keen that we really know how to write a research paper. So we spent a lot of our time just having access to resources, whether it be reading books. And we, in our school, have this database. Um, so just getting all of the information because... For a research paper, you have an idea and you have a thesis, but now you need the research and essays of other people to support that fact. So it was a long process, but I actually didn't talk about it at all in my application process at all. You will find yourself. I remember two years ago, one of my friends, she got into Brown and I was telling her, you're so impressive as an individual. You do all these things. And she's like, most of the things that I do, like ice skating and playing an instrument, I didn't even include them in my college application process. You will find out that a lot of extracurriculars and things that you do just because you love it or because you wanted to are not, you're not going to have the space or you're simply going to find yourself not putting them on your college application process. So that was one of the things that I didn't talk about, but I think it really made my high school experience and it really just helped me get out of my shell and just being bold and advocating for undocumented immigrants and just immigrants in general. I mean, that's amazing that you're shedding light on that. 
like, yeah. most people are not aware. Like you can be sympathetic to the cause, but you don't even know like you're all the not aware that go through it. all yeah. the struggles. And I think that's one thing, but also the anxiety that comes with it. You know, my family makes jokes. You know, they they joke about it all the time, and they're like, "Oh, we can't call ISIS on you now." But <laughs> but there's an anxiety every single specifically when you were living under the Trump administration, and you know, there's just so much hatred. You're scared to to even talk about the anxiety that you feel around it because you don't know how you might be perceived in the eyes of others. And you don't know whether, you know, ISIS or any sort of like government um, office will retaliate because of your presence in this country. So, and especially specifically as a child, you know, I'm an adult now, but I was going through this as a child. So it was just, it was a lot, but we got, we got over it. (laughs) Obviously, I mean, you're here. Amazing. All right. So why not now, like what we can do is let list your extracurriculars, like what you did, like, I guess the title that you put on your application or at least the main ones you want to share. And then I'll just write them down because my memory is like so bad. My short term memory is so bad. So I'll write them down and then we can go through each one and you can kind of like elaborate on them as well. All right. So for my activities in the community service section, um, I am the co-founder and as well as a member of the Belleville Library uh, Teen Advisory Board, or TAB for short. That was the first thing in my activity section. And for foreign language, I put language ambassador for French and Haitian Creole, Belleville student language ambassador. So basically, we are students who speak multiple languages. So when we have um, new students at the school who maybe don't speak English or we give tours and we're just available um, to translate. The third one was a member and president of the math club. And under social justice, I was a co-founder, a secretary, and as well, and eventually a social media manager for the Black Allegiance and Supporters of Equality, uh, a club called BASE. And after that, I am the co-founder and vice president of our crochet club. And for volunteering, I am a reading buddy at the Belleville Library. So basically since eighth grade, every summer I go and I teach kids how to read as well as just help them get acquainted to literature and enjoying literature. After that, I put National Honor Society. A lot of the times people tell you not to put National Honor Society on in your activity section and just put in your honor section. But I think if you do a lot in the organization, for example, coordinate, I think I had about 19 members that I had to coordinate getting 60 hours of community service. And I did a lot. So I put that down. And I was a member of the Women's Empowerment Club. And lastly, I was assistant to the women of the church, Haitian Evangelical Church of Jesus Christ. So basically at the church, we would be doing um, any sort of uh, fundraiser I was there to help the ladies and I was also an usher at my church. That's all the activities I put down. All right. So I have them in the list. So we'll just go down. So Absolutely. you're a co-founder of some sort of library club. So can you elaborate? Like, where did you start with that? Why did you yeah. do it? And then again, for college app purposes, what did the admissions officers see? Like, how did you describe your activity to them? Absolutely. So the years that I put as 10, 11, and 12, um, I did this activity during the school year, but also during any break time. I am the co-founder in 10th grade and member 11th and 12th grade. 
And for description, I simply put plan and coordinated events and programs to increase teen enrollment at the library, advised on YA book selections and teen service being provided. Um, I've been a consistent volunteer at our library because coming from a really strict family, uh, the library was the only place really that I had access to that I could go consistently and my parents would actually approve of. Girl, yeah, yep. <laughs> so the librarian saw me there all the time and I became a, a volunteer, whether it be which is organizing the books or the children. And the teen librarian approached me the summer before sophomore year and just like, Michelle, I have this idea. And if you can help me come up with it, I want to start a teen board because the library has a board. And the teen board really was to try to help increase teen involvement at the Belleville Library. So we drafted uh, this paper and there's also other teen advisory boards in the county. So we try to reach out to them, see how they set up. And we just created one. I had to recruit other kids in the community or at the school that I thought would be a great fit. And basically we created programs for the library. I remember the first program that I that I created was right before the pandemic hit. And it was an art gallery set up at the library. Mm. It was in collaboration with the school where I reached out to our art department. And at the time, I think it was right around like um, Black History Month. So all the kids were making these arts influenced by Black culture, by Harlem Renaissance and all of that. So we really just took those um, those paintings and pictures and just placed them in the teen section of the library. Uh, but recently, the Teen Advisory Board did a crystal ball, a career crystal ball, where we bring um, different prof- professionals to the library and teens get to come, whether it be a doctor, a lawyer, a police officer, or even some some roles that are obscured a little bit, whether it be being involved in uh, social media, being like a Pinterest, uh, mm-hmm. I think, person, whatever it is, just invite them. They get to talk to the kids and really just give them an insight into their job. That was one of the most influential extracurriculars, I would say, because it really taught me how to be a leader, uh, directing the board and really just how to create an organization, how is it run, um, how working with different people, reaching out to different members of the community and such. That was the first activity that I put on. And that was the one that I gave the most um, value to, because I think your first activity should be the one that you think um, has the most value. So Michelle, now we're going to go on to the second extracurricular. You said language ambassador, which was for just incoming students. So can you, was it like an official program? Like, did you have roles or was it more like you're on standby and you help students, whoever, whoever needs help basically? It is more like you're on standby. So my freshman year, I took Spanish 2A and my Spanish teacher was really keen on making bubble more inclusive uh, for people who didn't speak English more and more specifically for parents who didn't speak English because we do have a lot of immigrants in this town. So uh, she really just put out this poster. And if you speak another language, you sign up and you're basically on standby. So I was a standby for Haitian Creole and French. So if we had a new student um, that didn't speak the language or their parents didn't speak the language, it would calm me down and I would be there to translate 
or uh, we have these like linear linears with like tags. So if you want, if you go to like some sort of like town events, since we are a small town, we host a lot of town events, you would go and wear the tag or the linear and people would just come up to you if they need help. Where's the bathroom? Where's this? And that's all. That's the basis of it. But for a formal description, um, I simply put facilitate transition for transfer students and their parents stand in as an available translator during school sponsored community events. All right. So, oh, and you speak French. That's so. <laughs> you know, if you ever speak to a French person or anyone really who speak French, whether it be African or Caribbean, um, they will tell you that French is not that pretty to them, that Spanish really? is the most romantic language. Yes. Uh, when you listen to French, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not that. Have you ever like watched a French movie? It's not that impressive. It sounds pretty meh to me. I think Spanish is really romantic. More That's so a than new perspective. No, I, I was like, Spanish I, I, sounds I, I, a bit too much like English to me. No, if you if you watch some novellas and oh my gosh, when the main characters start speaking, it's a lot more romantic than any French language. Okay, I'm gonna take your I'm gonna take your word for it because I have not watched any French films. It's only the <laughs> wee wee moussou stuff like that. <laughs> There's a new one. There's a new one on Netflix. It's called uh, Dangerous Liaison. And the uh, Les Liaisons Dangereux, that's how mm-hmm. I think it's in French. And you can either watch it dubbed in English or you can watch it dubbed in just in its or- original language, which is French. It's a good movie to check out. Dangerous Liaison, you said? Yes. It's on Netflix. All right. So let's go on. You said, I'm just going down the list here, president of math club. So yeah, let you take it from here. Oh, wow. It starts freshman year. I had geometry um, my freshman year of high school. And our teacher was Mrs. Rajuk. She was this, um, well, she is this <laughs> Russian teacher. Everyone is intimidated by. She mm-hmm. has impeccable fashion sense and this thick accent. And I remember everyone warned me, oh my gosh, you're not going to like the class. She has a thick accent. I loved the class. But in the beginning, I sucked at geometry. It is actually the one C in my um, report card ever. It was my lowest grade, but she really taught me how to be better at math and how to explore different avenues when it comes to learning because learning should be a trial and error. If you are consistently good at everything, you're not truly learning. There has to be a productive struggle somewhere, right? And at the end of the school year, I'm like, oh my gosh, Mrs. Rajuk, I like, it's like geometry has gotten easier. And she's like, no, Michelle, you've gotten better at math. And she tried to get me to join the, um, the math club. So I joined and I became the president junior year, even though it was during a pandemic. So a lot of the stuff, a lot of our meetings were virtual, but it's really more than a math club. It's really helping kids explore math as a subject and how it applies to art and how it applies to life situations and how it can be a place of comfort, Uh, specifically as an immigrant. When you don't speak the language, math is universal. You can still degrade and you can still connect to other people through math. So my description for it was a team and prepping for yearly math competition, 
organize fundraisers, prepare agenda meetings, recruit members by promoting benefits of the club because we have a yearly uh, math competition. Mm-hmm. This year we went and we didn't place at all, let me be honest. Um, because <laughs> the other schools in the county, oh my gosh, are just wildly impressive. But that was the basis of the math club. Um, the most, my favorite memory is actually painting the math hallway because we have a math hallway. Oh. And if you go down the math hallway, the walls have like different math symbols and we have the tree of math instead of the tree of life where we just like put different um, theories and uh, different math symbols and equations. So that was my favorite memory, just like really painting the walls after school and listening to music as a club. That's just so cute. I mean, like we do that at our school too, but I have to say the mm-hmm. math wall is lacking. <laughs> so, just, no, I mean, everyone hates going down the math hall because you, there's calculus, there's algebra, there's mm-hmm. geometry. But if you paint it and you make it look pretty, it's a little bit more inviting. It to is, students. It is. especially when your school's so bland like mine. Like it's like all boxed in. So it's like minimal windows, everything's inside. So it's like, that is my school. It's beige. We have a joke. Beige, it was, yeah. It was probably made by like an architect that makes prison because it, oh my gosh. Yes. We, we, we've been doing more renovations, but the school is not really appealing. So adding a little pop of color. And of course, administration can't really deny us of that because you can simply paint it over in a couple of years. So mm-hmm. it's been really fun. Yeah. I think our schools are like parallels of each other. It's probably, yeah. probably, probably, probably the same school. All right. So let's go more down the list. You said you're part of, you're part of, you're, sorry, you're founder of a Black Allegiance Club. So yes. how do you find a club? Like, how did you, was it easy as just like going to your teacher and being like, I want to make a club? I know. Um, I think sometimes clubs are easier to establish in a school than other times, specifically the Black Allegiance supporters of, um, now, let me, let me rephrase. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the Black allegiance and supporters of equality. This club started really amidst the Black Lives Matter movement during the pandemic. Uh, we were seeing a lot of what you would call trauma porn, just when you go on when you go on social media and you're seeing just Black individuals being beaten to death, um, their bodies laying down, bloodied and all of that. It's really traumatizing. And I did not have the, I I, I was not the person who was like, oh, we need this club. It was actually my cousin and her group of friends. And they invited me along. That's why I said co-founder. The basis of it is we live in a small town of Belleville, a town that I find to be quite inclusive. And I didn't really think about how not, how really that was not the truth until the Black Lives Matter movement, and you saw a lot of people coming out of their shells and showing um, their real face, really. Mm-hmm. And I remember at one point I was sitting in my room and I burst into tears because I felt so helpless. For the longest time, I was the girl who was sitting in, you know, at the at the Thanksgiving table and arguing with her parents. No, America is not what you make it out to be. America is a great country. You know, my friends, they're they're not racist. They're not prejudiced. And then to see that come to the forefront, yeah. I felt really helpless. And I remember thinking that ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is privilege. If you get to turn your back and say that 
white privilege doesn't exist, or you get to say that racism in America, that Black people are not being marginalized, it's because you have a privilege. You are not experiencing that trauma that they're experiencing. And I came up with that sort of thinking because I felt like I was privileged. I've always been around people who are welcoming for the most part. I never, never really experienced any sort of like blatant racism in my life. So I thought that was the experience of every Black person in America. And that's not the right mindset. That's where the idea of ignorance is privilege. If you can't be ignorant to the fact, it's because you are in a better position. So we started the club just to create a space for Black students in Belleville for civil discourse, um, where Black students would be the leaders, but everyone is welcome because we wanted to have conversations that people are not having. Because the minute you say a word like white privilege, some people shut down. We wanted to break it down. What is the point of the Black Lives Matter movement? What is the point of what is the point of people going online and advocating for really paying attention to Black women, to Black men, and creating a society where we can thrive, where we have rights that the country that this country promised? So my cousins, my cousin and her friends set out to create the club. And we received a lot of pushback from administration, specifically because of the title, the Black Allegiance. Um, They wanted us to have a different title. How about you say the Inclusivity Club? We're like, no, this is the Black Allegiance and supporters of equality. We want Black students to be leaders, to really pave the way for these conversations, for these changes. And the administrations didn't want it. So it took months to really get the get the club approved. And it took months. a year to finally have an advisor because we don't have any Black teachers at our school. So we wanted a Black advisor and that was not possible. Um, it took a lot, but we got the club to where it's at today. And the description that I put was realization of civil discourse and social media to bring awareness to injustices faced by POCs and minorities. And we partnered with Belleville Allies. Belleville Allies is a found, it's really a, a group of individuals, mostly adults, in this community who are striving to create a space for people of color, but also for people that are part of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, that's why we are also, we call ourselves supporters of equality, whether that be for women's rights, whether that be for gay rights, whatever it may be. And partnering with Bubble Allies really introduced me to this uh, organization and club. Uh, we hosted uh, Conversation Continues and it was this live, it was this YouTube live where you got to, where Black students, in Belleville, or really in Essex County, got to read out their por- their poems or show their arts or um, write a speech and just really talk about the Black experience. That was the basis of the club, creating a space mm-hmm. for Black students and people of color to have a voice and to have those difficult conversations. And even if you don't agree with what I'm saying, that we could come to the same level of understanding. And that was actually the one um, extracurricular that I expounded upon in my Harvard application process, because in the Harvard application, 
we have a small essay, I think it's about 200 words or 100 words, where you get to really go a little bit deeper into an extracurricular. And that was my choice, the base club. Okay, that's good. Because like, the amount of space you have is like so limited. And you don't have to tell like half of what you did for the extracurricular. You don't, you really don't. So it's good that, yeah, you chose, I was like, you went through that much struggle and for them not to know, it's like. Not to know about it. Yeah. It's crazy.